Volume Three, Chapter Four of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume Three, Chapter Four. Toute passion nuisible attire comme le gouffre par le vertige. La faiblesse de volonté amène la faiblesse de tête, et l'abîme, malgré son horreur, fascine alors comme un asile. Amiel. People said that John had a charmed life. The divergence of an eighth of an inch, of a hundredth part of an inch, of a hair's breadth, and the little bead that passed right through his neck would have pierced the jugular artery, and John would have added one more to the long list of names in Overly Church. As it was, when once the direction of the bullet had been ascertained, he was pronounced to be in little danger. He rallied steadily, and without relapse. People said that he bore a charmed life, and they began to say something more, namely, that it was an object to somebody that it should be wiped out. Men are not shot at for nothing. John was not an Irish landlord. Someone evidently bore him a grudge. Society instantly formed several more or less discreditable reasons to account for John's being the object of someone's revenge. Half-forgotten rumours of Archie's doings were revived with John's name affixed to them. Decidedly there had been some entanglement, and John had brought his fate upon himself. Colonel Tempest, just returned from foreign travel, heard the matter discussed at his club. His opinion was asked as to the truth of the reports, but he only shrugged his shoulders, and it was supposed that he could not deny them. Dyes, Lady Alice Fane's, and Miss Crupp's name were all equally associated with John's in the different versions of the accident. Colonel Tempest did not go to see his daughter. She had been telegraphed for the morning after the ice carnival by Mrs. Courtney, who had actually developed with the thaw the bronchitis which she had dreaded throughout the frost. Di, and Archie, whose leave was up, returned to town together for once. Archie had experienced a distinct, though shamed, pang of disappointment when John's state was pronounced to be favourable. All night long, as he had sat waking and dozing beside the gallery fire opposite Lord Hemsworth's motionless, wakeful figure, visions of wealth passed in spite of himself before his mind, visions of foreign hands and screaming champagne suppers and smashing things he could afford to pay for, and running his own horses on the turf. He did not want John to die. He had been dreadfully shocked when he first caught sight of the stony, upturned face almost beneath his feet and had strained every nerve in his body to overtake the murderer. He did not want John to go where he, Archie, would have been terrified to go himself. But he wanted the things John had, which his father had often told him should by rights have been his, and they could not have had them at the one and the same time. He could not understand his father's fervent, thank God, when he assured him that John was out of danger. A miss is as good as a mile, said Archie, with his smallest grin. He was desperately short of money again by this time, and he had no one to apply to. He knew enough of John to be aware that nothing was to be expected from that quarter. Twenty-four hours ago he had thought, how could he have helped it? That perhaps there would be no further trouble on that irksome, wearisome trap subject. For lack of money and the annoyance entailed by procuring it was the thorn in Archie's flesh. But now the annoyance was still there, beginning as it were all over again, owing, too, 
John. Madeline would lend him money, he knew, but he would be a cad to, to take it. He could not think of such a thing, he said to himself, as he turned it over in his mind. The ice carnival and John's escape were a nine days' wonder. In ten days it was forgotten for a cause célèbre by everyone except Colonel Tempest. Colonel Tempest had had a fairly pleasant time abroad. While his small stock of ready money lasted, the remainder of the five hundred subtracted from the sum he had returned to John after his interview with Larkin, he had really almost enjoyed himself. He picked up a few old companions of the hanger-on species at Baden and Homburg, and had given them dinners. He was always open-handed. He had the natural predilection for the society of his social inferiors, which generally accompanies a predilection for being deferred to, and regarded as a person of importance. He was under the impression that he was the most liberal-minded of men in the choice of his companions, and without the social prejudices of his class. He had won a little at Baccarat. His health also had improved. On his return in December to the lodgings which he had left in such a panic in July, he told himself that he had been in a morbid state of health, that he had taken things too much to heart, that he had been oversensitive, that there was no need to be afraid. Five months had elapsed. It would be all right. And it had been all right for about a month, and then— If the distressing theory that virtue is its own reward has any truth, Surely sin is its own punishment. The old monotonous pains took Colonel Tempest. It is a popular axiom among peoples in robust health that others labouring long under a painful disease become accustomed to it. It is perhaps as true as all axioms, however freely laid down by persons in one state respecting the feelings of others in a state of which they are ignorant, can be. Continual dropping of water wears away the stone. The stone ought, of course, to put up an umbrella, anyone can see that, or shift its position, but it seldom does so. There was a continual dropping of a slowly diluted torture on the crumbling sandstone of Colonel Tempest's heart. The few months of intermission only rendered more acute the agony of the inevitable recommencement. As he felt in July after the fire in John's lodgings, so he felt now, just the same again, all over again, only worse. The porous sandstone was wearing down. He wandered like a ghost in the snowy places in the park, for snow had followed the thaw, or paced for hours by the serpentine, staring at the water. Once, in a path across the park, he suddenly caught sight of John walking slowly in the direction of Kensington. The young man passed within a couple of yards of him without seeing him, his head bent, and his eyes upon the ground. "'It is his ghost,' said Colonel Tempest to himself, clutching the railing, and looking back at the receding figure with an access of shuddering horror. Another figure passed, a heavy man in an ulster. "'He's been followed,' thought Colonel Tempest. "'It is Swain, and he is following him.' He rushed panting after the second figure, and overtook it at a meeting of the ways. "'Swain!' he gasped. "'For mercy's sake, Swain, don't—' A benevolent elderly face turned and peered at him in the twilight, and Colonel Tempest remembered that Swain was dead. "'My name is Smith,' said the man, and after waiting a moment, passed on. In a flash of memory Colonel Tempest saw Swain's huddled figure crouching in the disordered bed, and the checked trousers over a chair, and the candle on the window-sill bent double by the heat. That 
had been the manner of Swain's departure. How had he come to forget he was dead, and that John was laid up at Overley? "'I'm going mad,' he said to himself. "'That will be the end. I shall go mad and tell everything.' The new idea haunted him. He could not shake it off. There was nothing in the wide world to turn to for a change of thought. If he fell asleep at night, he was waked by the sound of his own voice, to find himself sitting up in bed, talking loudly of he knew not what. Once he heard himself call Swain's and John's names aloud into the listening darkness, and broke into a cold sweat at the thought that he might have been heard in the next room. Perhaps the other lodger, the young man with the red hair, cramming for the army, knew everything by this time. Perhaps the lodging-house people had been listening at the door and would give him in charge in the morning. Did he not at that very moment hear furtive steps and whispering on the landing? He rushed out to see the thin tabby-cat, the walking funeral of the beetles and mice of the establishment, slip noiselessly downstairs, and he returned to his room shivering from head to foot, to toss and shudder until the morning, and then furtively eye the landlady and her daughter in curl-papers. More days passed. Colonel Tempest had had doubts at first, but gradually he became convinced that the people in the house knew. He was sure of it by the look in their faces if he passed them on the stairs. It was merely a question of time. They were waiting to make certain before they informed against him. Perhaps they had written to John. There was no news of John, except a rumour in the world, that he was to stand at the coming general election. Colonel Tempest became the prey of an idée fixe. When John came forward on the hustings, he would be shot at and killed. He became as certain of it as if it had already happened. At times he believed it had happened, that he had been present and had seen him fall forward, and it was he, Colonel Tempest, who had shot him, and had been taken red-handed with one of his old regimental pistols smoking in his hand. Colonel Tempest had those pistols somewhere. One day he got them out and looked at them, and spent a long time rubbing them up. They used to hang crosswise under a photograph of himself in uniform in his wife's little drawing-room. He recollected, with the bitterness that accompanies the remembrance of the waste of lavished affections, how he had sat with his wife and child a whole wet afternoon polishing up those pistols, while another man in his place would have gone off to his club. Colonel Tempest always knew what that other man would have done. And Di had been gentle and affectionate, and had had a colour for once, and had played with her creeping child like a cat with its kitten. And they had had tea together afterwards, sitting on the sofa with the child asleep between them. Ah! If she'd only been always like that, he thought, as he remembered the cloud that, owing to her uncertain temper, had gradually settled on his home life. An intense bitterness was springing afresh in Colonel Tempest's mind against his dead wife, against his dead brother, against Swain, against his children who never came near him, Di was nursing Mrs. Courtney and bronchitis, but that was of no account. Against the world in general, which did not care what became of him. No one cared. "'They'll be sorry some day,' he said to himself. And still the waking nightmare remained of seeing John fall, and of finding he had shot him himself. More days passed. And gradually, among the tottering debris of a life undermined from its youth, other thought began, mole-like, to delve and creep in the darkness. Truly the way of transgressors is hard. No one cared what he suffered, what he went through. 
This was the constant refrain of these latter days. He had paroxysms of angry tears of self-pity with his head in his hands, his heart rent to think of himself sitting bowed with anguish by his solitary fireside. Love holds the casting vote in the destinies of most of us. There is only one love which rings the heart beyond human endurance, the love of self. And yet more days. The sun gave no light by day, neither the moon by night. To the severe cold of January a mild February had succeeded. March was close at hand. The hope and yearning of the spring was in the air already. Already in Kensington Gardens the silly birds had begun to sing, and the snowdrops and the little regiments of crocuses had come up in double file to listen. On this particular afternoon a pale London sun was shining like a new shilling in the sky, striking as many sparks as he could out of the round pond. There was quite a regatta at that cow's of nursery shipping. The mild wind was just strong enough to take sailing vessels across. The big man-of-war belonging to the big melancholy man who seemed open to an offer, the yachts and the little fishing smacks, everything with a sail, got over sooner or later. The tiny hollow boats with seats were being towed along the edge in leading reins. A wooden doll with joints took advantage of its absence of costume to drop out of the boat in which it was being conveyed and take a swim in the open. But it was recovered. An old gentleman with spectacles hooked it out with the end of his umbrella in a moment, quite pleased to be of use. The little boys shouted, the little girls tossed their manes, and careered round the pool on slender black legs. Solemn babies looked on from perambulators. The big man started the big man of war again, and the whole fleet came behind in its wake. Colonel Tempest was sitting on a seat near the landing-place where the ship-owners had run to touch their property a moment ago. His hand was clenched on something he held under his overcoat. "'Where the big ship touches the edge,' he said to himself. They came slowly across the pool in a flock. Every little boy shrieked to every other little boy of his acquaintance to observe how his particular craft was going. The big man alone was perfectly apathetic though his priceless possession was the first, of course. He began walking slowly round. Half the children were the landing before him, calling to their boats and stretching out their hands towards them. The big one touched land. "'Not this time,' said Colonel Temp to himself. "'Next time.' How often he had said that already! How often his hand had failed him when the moment when he and that other self had agreed upon had arrived! How often he had gone guiltily back to the rooms to which he had not intended to return, and had lain down once more in the bed which had become an accomplice to the torture of every hour of darkness. Between the horror of returning once again, and the horror of the step into another darkness, his soul oscillated with the feeble violence of despair. He remembered the going back of yesterday. "'I'll not go back again,' he said to himself with the passion of a spoilt child. "'I will not! I will not!' "'It's time to go home, Master Georgie,' said a nursery-maid. "'Just one more, Bessie,' pleaded the boy. "'Just one single once more.' "'Well, then, it must be the last time, mind,' said the good-natured arbiter of fate, turning the perambulator and pushing it along the edge, while the occupant of the same added to the hilarity of the occasion by beating a much-chewed musical rattle against the wheel.
the last time. The chance words seized upon Colonel Tempest's shuddering, panic-stricken mind, and held it as in a vice. Next time, he said over and over to himself, next time shall really be the last time, really the last, the very last. The boats were coming across again, struggling wide of each other. How quick! Yet what an eternity in coming! The top-heavy boat with the red sail would be the first. It had been started long before the others. The wind caught it near the edge. It would turn over. No, it righted itself. It neared. It bobbed in the ripple of the brink. It touched. Colonel Tempest's mind had become quite numb. He only knew that for some imperative reason which he had forgotten, he must pull the trigger. He half pulled it. Then again more decidedly. There was a report. It stunned him back to a kind of consciousness of what he had done. But he felt nothing. There was a great silence, and then a shrieking of terrified children, and a glimpse of agitated people close at hand, and others running towards him. The man with the big boat under his arm said, "'By gum!' Colonel Tempest looked at him. He felt nothing. Had he failed? The smoke came curling out at his collar, and something dropped from his nerveless hand and lay gleaming on the grass. There was a sound of many waters in his ears. "'He might have spared the children,' said a man's voice, tremulous with indignation. "'That is always the way. No one thinks of me,' thought Colonel Tempest. And the round pond, and the growing crowd, and the child nearest him with its convulsed face, all turned slowly before his eyes, slid up, and disappeared. End of Volume 3 Chapter 4